And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's begin our worship time this morning before we open God's Word for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have your, we have your word that illuminates every category of thought in our minds, that we know that in your light we see light. And it is only by a clear understanding of your revelation that we can truly begin to comprehend the creation around us, truly understand who and what we are as creatures in the image of God, though fallen, and that we can understand your great and glorious plan of salvation. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you will help us to see how you have worked all these things together in in history to bring about our so great salvation. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by these things and by an understanding of your magnificence, your omnipotence, and your tremendous grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we will continue our study of what took place the night before Jesus Christ went to the cross. We have seen that this is a Passover meal that he is celebrating with his disciples, that they are together in the upper room. This is the night before he goes to the cross and that he has begun to instruct them on doctrines related to the spiritual life as it will change with the coming church age. He has illustrated by virtue of his actions that particular night what he is going to do on the next day as a servant, that he will go to the cross and there he will take away the sin of the world. And so he gave a visual example of that by taking off his very expensive robe And he wrapped a towel around his waist, which is the garment of a servant, of a slave. And he performed the most menial of chores. He washed the feet of his disciple. In that culture, as we have studied, a disciple of a rabbi would do anything for that rabbi and was required to do anything. They couldn't pay anything, so they would take care of his meals and they would uh, cook for him and do the grocery shopping and wash his clothes and all those menial tasks that are and domestic chores that are necessary, but they would never stoop so low as to wash the feet of the 
uh, rabbi because that was a job reserved for slaves and Gentile slaves at that. No Jew was required to wash the feet of another Jew. And yet Jesus, taking on the form of a servant, humbles himself to the point of obedience, and here he shows by his actions what he will do on the next day. We saw last time that the thrust of this had to do with forgiveness of sin, and so he mandated this of all believers, just as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that we are to forgive one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. So he says to, to all believers that we are to do exactly what he has done, verse 15, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And the point is forgiving one another. He is demonstrating grace again and again. Now, in this scenario, they're at a table. It's a low table, and at a formal meal like Passover, you would recline. You wouldn't sit there. And so as you were reclining, you'd be lying on your side. And so Jesus is closer to John, who would be on his left, and Judas was on his right, the position of honor. And so Jesus could carry on a little private conversation with John that others at the table would not be aware of. And after the conclusion of his discussion of, and explaining what he had done in the foot washing, he says in verse 18, or let me see, verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. And here we have to pay attention to very precise language in the text. And he uses the word for all. He uses the term pas, which is in the plural form. So he's talking about everyone there. He says, I do not speak of all of you. And here he uses humon, uh, the genitive plural, H-U-M-O-N, the genitive plural, second person, you all. So he's addressing the entire crowd. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Now, we have already seen, and we'll come back and examine the passage again, that Jesus has already made a point that there is at least one person in this group that is not a believer. And he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've, I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Psalm, Psalm 41.9, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Now, what he's emphasizing there is his personal, sovereign control over the circumstances leading up to the crucifixion. This isn't an accident. This isn't something that, that just suddenly befell Jesus, and if he had just had a little more savvy, if he had just stayed out of Jerusalem, that he could have survived this, he wouldn't have been arrested, he wouldn't have gone to the cross, we wouldn't have had this tragedy. He is showing that he is in specific control of all of the events leading up to his arrest and his crucifixion to bring about the fulfillment of Old Testament typology and Old Testament prophecy related to accomplishing salvation for the human race. So he is announcing this to his disciples to encourage them so that they would not run away, which, of course, they did anyway. And then he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, 
and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now when Jesus had said this, verse 21, he became troubled in spirit. And this is the same word we saw when we studied his response to the crowd's mourning and grief in John 11, that he was troubled in spirit. Several times this is mentioned when the Gentiles uh, came to uh, Andrew and said, we want to speak to him. And, and Andrew went to the Lord and said, there's some Gentiles here who want to talk to you. Uh, this was a sign that the Gentiles were positive, on positive volition. They were ready to hear the gospel. The Jews had rejected him and were told Jesus became troubled in spirit. So there is this turmoil. It's a word that would be used to describe the, the tumult of the waves on the Sea of Galilee during a storm. So it shows that there is this inner turmoil because Jesus sees what is coming. He understands the dynamics. He knows that he is going. He who knew no sin would be made sin for us. And the suffering that he would endure on the cross during those three hours when he became in contact with our sin was more painful, more miserable than any suffering, any pain that we could ever imagine. So as he sees this, sees certain things, we see this agitation that takes place in his soul and spirit. He became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, verse 22, we realize the disciples do not have a clue who this will be. There's been three years. These 12 men have spent hours, days together ministering. They do not discern a distinction in their midst. So they have no idea who this will be. And verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. There was one reclining on Jesus' breast, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. John always refers to himself in this sort of oblique way. Very close, intimate relationship with the Lord. And the Lord's lying there, and you just sort of see the Lord lean back, and his head is on on John's chest, and he whispers to him. Now, Peter's across the room. Jesus makes this comment, there's one who's going to betray me, and he doesn't expand on it. Now, impatient Peter is across when he doesn't say anything. He's put his opened his mouth and inserted his foot one too many times already this night. So he gestures, you know, John, ask him. You know, he just you know, kind of nods his head. Ask the question. He doesn't really come out and open his mouth. He just sort of gestures and and gets John to go ahead and ask the question. Tell us whom he is speaking. Who who are you talking about, Lord? In verse 25, He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? That's John speaking. And in verse 26, Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now, no one else hears this. This is private conversation. Jesus is leaning over right up against John, and he says, It's the one I dip the morsel. Now, the morsel... now. The morsel that's dipped is just bread. But they would take unleavened bread, kind of like pita bread. Pita bread is unleavened, if you didn't know that. And soft. And they would wrap that around a piece of lamb. The lamb represents Jesus Christ, the lamb of the world, the, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he is going to take this, and it's symbolic, once again, of God's continuous grace to Judas. 
And one last time, symbolically, he is offering salvation to Judas. And so Jesus is going, leans back to, to John. He says, okay, the one I give the morsel to. So after he tells John that, then he dips the morsel into kind of a mixture of herbs and he hands it to Judas. And then verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, the conversation with John and the conversation with Judas is very private. Peter doesn't hear it. The other men at the table don't hear it. So when Judas stands up to leave, verse 28, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that he was the treasurer, treasurer of the group, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast. This was typical on Passover. Another example that this was a Passover meal is that often the family member will leave temporarily, take some money to give to charity. So they thought that that's what Judas was doing, was going out to donate some money to charity, to those, or, or perhaps to buy something that they didn't need because the next day they wouldn't be able to buy anything. So they thought that perhaps he was going out and giving something to the poor, buying more food. So after, verse 30, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And then notice what John said. And it was night. See, there, As we have seen over and over again in this gospel, John draws this juxtaposition between the darkness and the light. Remember back when we looked at Nicodemus in John 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus out of the darkness. He comes at night. He's an unbeliever. The darkness there, it's, it, he truly comes in out of the darkness. But John mentions these things because he's, he's, he, he is t- teaching us things at different levels. So he's using the darkness not only because it's literally true, but to emphasize a spiritual principle that Nicodemus is an unbeliever. He's coming out of the darkness. And later in that same chapter, Jesus, I mean, John draws out that point by saying that, that Jesus is the light of the world and the light that comes into the world is rejected because men love the light, um, love the darkness rather than the light. And he continually draws out spiritual principles here. And so when he notes for us that it was night, he is indicating Judas's salvation status, that he was not a believer and he goes back into the darkness, for men love the darkness rather than the light and reject the light. Now this raises this whole episode with Judas, which I have covered just in sort of a summary fashion, what happens at the meal, has raised a lot of questions and concern uh, throughout church history. People ask the question, why did Jesus include an unbeliever in the inner circle? Why did the disciples not ever realize that Judas was different? Could it even be possible that Judas was a believer? So what I want to look at is this whole issue of just kind of pull together how Judas fits into the doctrines of salvation and salvation history, how Judas fits into the plan of God in bringing about the salvation of the world, that, that Judas plays a role that goes beyond a human role of betrayer 
but his particular function fits into the overall angelic conflict in a phenomenal way. Now, in church history, there have been a number of different sects and cults and heretical groups that have had some odd positions about Judas. There was a group in the 2nd and 3rd century called the Cainites because they glorified Cain, the brother of Abel, the one who slew his brother Abel. And there was an apocryphal book written called the Gospel of Judas. And in that apocryphal book, it claimed that Judas was really a believer. You see, the Cainites were sort of a Gnostic sect. And in Gnosticism, they taught that there were two gods, really. There was the, the Old Testament God who is wicked and evil and angry and overbearing. And then there is the New Testament God, which is Jesus. And they're both eternal, And because in most Gnosticism there was always this eternal dualism between in the eternal existence of good versus evil. This, this continuous battle went, went back and forth between the Old Testament, Jehovah God who's evil, and Jesus who is, is loving. And so what they taught was that that uh, Judas and had, was a uh, knew about this, uh, knew understood the secret wisdom that was taking place here, and so he, more than all the other disciples, knew what was going on, and so through his great wisdom and insight, he uh, maneuvered things so the crucifixion would take place. He alone had the secret knowledge necessary, so his betrayal of Jesus was uh, was a good thing. For Judas, in the uh, 15th century, starting about four, uh, 1399 up through 1411, there was a Spanish Dominican preacher named Vincent Ferrer, and there were a number of odd things about him. But he was a Dominican monk, and he was associated with a sect called the Flagellants. Flagellants were those who beat themselves; they flagellated themselves with whips in order to. Uh, uh, crucify the flesh. That was their interpretation of it. They were ascetics and they thought that somehow they were more spiritual and they would impress God with their sorrow over sin by whipping themselves. And he was one of the flagellants and he also taught that Judas was in fact a believer and was not an unbeliever. And then in recent years there was a pastor a few years ago in Denver, I believe, who wrote a book to justify the fact that believers could actually get involved in all sorts of heinous sin, turn their back on Jesus, and be extremely carnal, even to the point of death. And in order to justify that position, he went to Judas. Now, his doctrinal position was absolutely correct. Believers have a sin nature that is just as sinful as any unbelievers and just as capable of any sin of any unbeliever. But you don't have to make Judas a Christian in order to accomplish that. There are all sorts of examples of carnal believers in the Scripture who um, do all sorts of things and um, are still saved. You think of Saul in the Old Testament, Demas in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, some others, and they were truly believers. You don't have to uh, go back and eisegete uh, the uh, New Testament. Eisegete means to read things in and twist your, your thinking in order to come up with something to justify a doctrinal position. You see, the way you do theology is you start off with basic exegesis. And exegesis is like the lower stage of, the, of, a, of a pyramid. And here you do basic syntax and grammar studies, and you do your word studies. Then on the basis of that, 
you have to look at isagogics, you have to look at cultural background, and you have to study what these things meant. You have to study linguistic idioms and all of these sorts of things. And then you have to study the particular writer, because John may use words and terminology differently from Paul or different from Peter, because they had different personalities. And if you read their writings, their style of writings, they're, they're very different, very different personalities. And this is really, this is a technical term, it's called biblical theology. This is not theology that's biblical as opposed to not being biblical, but in the technical term, biblical theology means a theology of Moses, a theology of John, Johannine theology, theology of Peter, Petrine theology, theology of Luke, and theology. Just looking at a particular writer and how they understood specific areas of systematic theology. So you build on that. You look at how did John understand salvation? What does John teach us uh, in the epistles, in Revelation, in the gospel, about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about theology proper? And then you build on top of your biblical theology. Then you begin to build your systematic theology and your categorization, classification, and then that becomes a basis for communication of truth in a categorical uh, way, communication. So this is the, the pyramid that you go through. And what happens sometimes is we get up here and you develop some kind of a theological principle. And you think that this is right. You come up with something and you say, well, golly, over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus appoints these 12 disciples and gives them authority over uh, disease and over the demons. And they go out and they heal people and they cast out demons. Well, that's a sign that you're an, a, a true apostle and a believer. So if Judas did that, then Judas must have really been a believer. And then you have to go back and you have to get into passages like this and make words and phrases mean things they don't mean anywhere else in the Scripture so you can justify this abstract theological principle that you've developed. In other words, you start with the horse and work back to the cart instead of starting with the cart and develop forward. It's a, it's a reverse process. And, and we all have to watch out for this. Every pastor I know commits this sin at some point or another. We're only human, and we all like to think that we have a lock on 100% on truth, and uh, we do make mistakes. None of us are inerrant because none of us are inspired by God the Holy Spirit. He only inspired the original writers of Scripture. So you always have to start with this procedure. So let's look at some basic exegetical considerations. Turn with me to John 6. John chapter 6. This takes place at the, after the, Jesus has reached the height of his popularity. We studied this earlier. We saw how he fed the um, uh, 5,000, which was really more like 15,000 when you factor in the women and the children. We saw that he calmed the storm on the sea, walked on the water, and gave the bread of life discourse, after which he scared off most of the people who were just casually curious or those that were believers but really weren't committed, really weren't positive towards the spiritual life. And we're told in verse 66, as a result of this, that is his teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed. Now, when 
Peter says, we have believed, he doesn't necessarily mean that all of them have believed because Peter couldn't know that. He's just going by what he can tell that it seems like all the other guys have uh, understand that you are the Messiah and, and have put their faith alone in Christ alone. So uh, we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus corrects his assumption in the next verse. Jesus answered them and said, Did I myself not choose you? Notice we saw this same thing emphasized in the passage we just looked at in 13.18 when Jesus said, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen. And he says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And notice that last phrase. There's no yet there in the Greek. That was just added by the uh, translator for emphasis. And one of you is a devil. Now here we have a very interesting phrase in the Greek. One of you is a devil. And it looks like this. I'll just break it down into its dictionary form. You have the phrase. First you have the numeral hase. One of you. And then you have the noun. Diabolos, and then you have the verb, which is from the root ami, okay? H-E-I-S for one, Diabolos, D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S, and then E-I-M-I for the verb. Now, I don't want to go back to it, but if we go to, if we were to look at John 1, 1, yes I do. Let's look at John 1. This is a little technical point, but it's an important technical point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's that last phrase, the Word was God, that is the whole issue between uh, Christians and those called Jehovah's Witnesses who want to say that, that this should be translated, the Word was a God. And when they knock on your door, they'll say, well, the Bible says a God, because there's no definite article with theos there in that last phrase. What you have in the Greek is the noun theos plus the verb in in the imperfect tense, ami. Now notice, no article here, no article here. You have the same construction. This is because it it comes before the verb, but it is really a predicate adjective describing the, the head noun. The head noun here is one the head noun in uh, one one is the word halagos. So what you have here is you have your head noun, which is your subject. One is the subject. Then you have an anarthrous. That means it doesn't have an article. You have an anarthrous noun followed by a verb. Now you cannot translate this with an indefinite article in English. Now, in English, you have a, we call it an article. It can be definite or indefinite. A and an are are indefinite article. The is the definite article. You use a definite article to show, to identify something as distinct from everything else in its class. If it has an indefinite article, it is a ball. It could be any ball. It could be a big ball. It could be a small ball. It could be a golf ball, basketball, football, soccer ball, all kinds of balls. It's a ball. But if you're talking about the ball, you're talking about a particular ball. The article in Greek functions in a completely different manner. 
In fact, you can have an anarthrous noun just ball, and one of the reasons you haven't used an article is to emphasize some distinct attribute about that particular ball. In other words, the absence of the article may still make it definite. And in fact, some nouns are inherently definite, like God. For example, in, uh, uh, in English, many times you use a word like, in American English, we always talk about going to the, uni- the university or going to the hospital. But if you ever read British writers, they never put an article with those two nouns. You always go to university or to hospital because they, they in their idiom, those words are inherently definite. Same thing is true with theos. Now, it's not true about diabolos, but it is true about theos. That's one reason why you, you don't have an article with it in, in John 1, 1, and you still know that this is God identifying the logos with the essence of God. Because when you drop out the article, one of the things that this emphasizes is the quality, the essence, or the inherent nature of, of the noun. So when Jesus, using the same kind of construction that we have in John 1, 1, says in John 6 that one of you is diabolos, he is not saying that one of you is a devil, one of a class of creatures called devils. There's only one devil. John uses the term diabolos about, let me see, about eight different times in all of his writings in the uh, uh, epistles and in Revelation. And in those eight times, the word diabolos never means generically um, a slanderer. Paul uses it that way twice in the pastoral epistles referring to women who get involved as malicious gossips. That's where it is translated as malicious gossips. But in Johannine literature, in all of John's writings, the term diabolos always refers to Satan. To the devil. So what Jesus is saying in John 6, chapter 6, verse 70, is, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is, has the same essence, nature, quality as the devil? That's what he's saying. That's the import of that. So he is identifying Judas, and just so we don't miss it, John in, inserts his editorial explanation in verse 71. Now, He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So John does not want us to miss the point, Judas equals the devil. Okay, that's our first point of an exegetical consideration, that there's something going on here with Judas that makes him different from everybody else. Then we go to John 17. John 17. John 17, verses 11 and 12. This is in the midst of the true Lord's Prayer. You know, we call that other prayer in in Matthew 7, the Lord's Prayer. But that can't be the Lord's Prayer because He says, Forgive forgive us for our sins. He doesn't have any sins. That's the disciples' prayer. This is the true Lord's Prayer, His high priestly prayer the night before He went to the cross. And in verse 11, He starts off saying, He's praying to the Father, And I am no more in the world, and yet they, that is, he's praying for these men, the disciples, the ones who are left, the eleven. He says, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, 
That is, by means of your essence, we've seen that name always refers to the essence of of the thing, keep them by means of your essence, your faithfulness, your omnipotence, the name which you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 12. While I was with them. Now he has prayed to keep them. This word tereo in the Greek is a word used for eternal security. The Father keeps us. And, and we do not keep ourselves. He is the one who keeps us in our salvation. He says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, except, not but, it's a may in the Greek, which is best translated except, except the son of perdition. Now that word for perdition is from the root apolumi, which is from the non-perish is apoleto, uh, son of perdition is apoleos, and apoleto means to perish. We know that word from John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whosoever believes on him will not perish. So perishing is the result of a failure to believe on him according to John 3.16. And so the son of perdition perishes. And remember we've studied that in, in Jewish idiom, when you wanted to identify someone's attributes, you use the phrase son of something. So if you were a disobedient person, you'd be called the son of disobedience. If you were divine, you were called the son of God. If you were a prophet, you were the sons of the prophets. It doesn't indicate descent. It indicates essential attribute. So the son of perdition is characterized by destruction or perishing. So he is the one that is lost. Why? Why was he lost? Fulfillment of prophecy. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Now we have to remember something very important that Jesus said back in John 10:29. John 10:29 Jesus said, "My Father, who has given them to me, the sheep. The Father has given them to me." What does he say here? He says, "The sheep, those which you gave me, I guarded them. I didn't guard the one you didn't give me. I guarded the ones you gave me, and not one of them perished." Because the ones the Father gives can't, be, can't perish. They are eternally secure. We saw that under the doctrine of eternal security. And here in John 10:29, My Father who has given them is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what we see here is the son of perdition is lost because of the son of perdition was never given. Those who are given are in the Father's hand and can never be lost. They can never be snatched out of the Father's hand. So, therefore, the son of perdition, who is Judas, is lost. He was never a believer. Now we go back to our passage in John 13 to review what Jesus said to Peter. When they're at the dinner and Jesus begins to wash everybody's feet, Peter reacted. And he said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Verse 6. And Jesus said, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall, you shall understand it hereafter. And so Peter said, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said, If I don't wash your feet, wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter said, Lord, wash my whole body. Give me a bath. And Jesus said, He who has bathed needs 
only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Now, we have studied this the last two weeks, and we have seen that when he says, He who has bathed, he was talking about a head-to-foot washing from the Greek word luo, L-U-O-O, and this refers to a full bath and is uh, comparable to the bath that the high priest took on his consecration and basically equals salvation. As a result of that, he is katharos. He is purified. This is the basis for salvation comparable to 1 John 1, 7, which says that the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. So we have to distinguish katharos, purification related to phase one salvation at the point that we trust Christ as our, as our Savior, and purification phase two, which is the result of confession of sin, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching here. At salvation, you're cleansed, but then experientially, you start to commit sins. Well, those have to be cleansed and purified, and that's 1 John 1, 9, which is analogous to washing the feet. So foot washing is related to simply taking care of post-salvation sins. So when we look at verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, He who is saved needs only to confess his sins to be completely clean again because he's completely cleansed from all pre-salvation sins at the point of salvation. And then he says, you are clean, plural you. You all are clean, but not all of you. So he indicates that one of them is not phase one cleansed, not phase one uh, purified, that one person is not a believer. And then John, again, inserts his editorial comment to make sure we don't miss the point. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So he wants us to connect the betrayer with the one who is not clean, not saved. And then, of course, we have to look at what takes place in verse 27 and the meaning of the verb ace. And this will be a good review of what we covered on Wednesday night. It's one reason why it's interesting how these things came together, that I covered the doctrine of demon possession and demon influence on Wednesday night to set this up. For those of you who weren't here, though, we have to do some review. In order to understand what the Bible teaches about demon possession, you have to understand six key words six key words. Now, the first word is the word diamonizomai. Diamonizomai is a present passive participle in the Greek, and some people have said, well, all this means is to be acted upon. That's the passive idea. To be acted upon by a demon or simply to be demonized. And And these same people will say that demon possession and demon influence are two different, are just invented categories. We just made them up. They're not in the Bible. All the Bible talks about is being demonized. And it can be, it's a, it's a spectrum. It can be uh, to a small degree or to a great degree, but it's just all demonized. Second term that's used to describe this is echodaimon, which means to have a demon. And the third phrase is in pneumati, akatharto, which means uh, it's in plus the dative of possession with an unclean spirit. Now, technically speaking, if this was all we had, 
we might say, well, you know, this is pretty vague. This isn't very clear. Maybe there is no such thing as demon possession. Now, remember, demon possession is defined as the uh, when a demon takes up residence inside a, an unbeliever's body. A believer cannot be demon-possessed. We're going to cover that this Wednesday night. Uh, demon possession is when a demon takes up residence inside the body of an unbeliever. Demon influence is when the doctrines of demons, false thinking, human viewpoint thinking, dominates the, the soul, the thinking, the mentality of either a believer or an unbeliever. Believers can be demon influenced whenever you operate on uh, human viewpoint thinking, on cosmic thinking, according to James 3.13. This is earthly, natural, and demonic so that is demon influence, doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now, these three words taken in and of themselves, might you might build a case that they're sufficiently generic to mean anything you wanted them to mean. However, the other three words that are used in the context, and on Wednesday night we examine the parallel uh, narratives of the Gadarene demoniac in Luke 8 and in the parallel passages in Mark and Matthew. And we saw that there's some interesting things used. In Matthew, the word diamondizomai is used. In Mark, echodimon is used. And in Luke, in numati akatharto is used. All of the same person. So we know that those are synonyms. But when Jesus is going to cast out the demon, he uses the word ekbalo. Notice he doesn't use the word exorkizo. Exorkizo, that's the word, Greek word from which we get the English word exorcist. And everybody who wants to talk about casting out demons is exorcism. Jesus did exorcism. Jesus never performed an exorcism. Not once, period. Exorcism, exorkizo describes the mystical, magical rites that unbelieving priests utilize to try to cast out demons. That's what, when you go to these deliverance things, they are doing exorcists. That has nothing to do with the Bible. The, uh, in, in the New Testament, the apostles and Jesus always cast out demons. Ekbalo is used, never exorkizo. So ekbalo means to cast out. It's a compound word from the preposition ek, which means out of, and balo, which means to throw. Out means that something has to be in. Prepositions tell the whole story here. So if Jesus is going to cast the demon out, the demon first has to be in something. This is again emphasized by the second word that's used in all of these narratives and many other, in all the demon possession narratives, and that is ex-erkomai, from the compound word erkomai, meaning to come or to go, and the preposition ek. Ek means to go out again. So the demon is said to come out of the man. So if the demon comes out of the man, where does the demon have to be before he can come out? He has to be in the man. So that's why you can go back and say these words may be generic, but, this, but these other words, ekbalo, ex-erkamai, and ace-erkamai, are very definite, technical, precise words, and they indicate the indwelling of a demon. And that brings us to the sixth word, which is ace erkamai, which means to go into, to enter, or to move into. And it is used in Luke 8.30 where many demons had entered him. These demons had entered him. You have the aorist active of ace erkamai here, 
and demons. This is in the nominative case, meaning the subject of the verb. The subject performs the action of the verb. So when we come to John 13, 27, and it says that Satan therefore entered into him, that's the same identical construction as Luke 8.30. And so if Luke 8.30 means that demons indwelt this individual, the Gadarene demoniac, then by virtue of every canon of language and grammar, the same thing must apply in verse 27 that uh, Jesus, I mean that Satan entered in to uh, Judas. And so Judas is clearly possessed by Satan. Now it is very clear from the way that these words are used that Ace Erkamai always refers to something entering something else. It's used of the chorus entering onto the stage. It's used of money going into somebody's account. It's used of somebody entering into an agreement or a contract. And it's used sometimes of an emotion entering into somebody. But in that case, the emotion is always in the nominative case because it's the emotion that enters, that performs the action. So you have to look at the sentence and determine what's in the nominative case to determine what goes into something else. Since Satan is in the nominative case, Satan is the one who enters in to Judas. Now, why does this happen? Well, I think this happens primarily, you have to fit it into the angelic conflict, and you go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, or verse 15, where... The Lord is addressing the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, that's a fatal wound, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Notice the imagery here, head and heel. What does Jesus say when he quotes from Psalm 41 as to what's going to take place in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy in John chapter 13? John 13, he quotes Psalm 41, he says, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is an attempt to destroy. It is tying this... ...angelic conflict that in eternity past, God the Father as the Supreme Court of Heaven, sentenced Satan and all of the fallen angels to the lake of fire. But Satan appealed the verdict. And so God creates human history, and you have Adam and Isha in the garden. And there's one issue here, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of Eden, uh, knowledge of evil. And Satan personally intervenes here in order to get Adam to fall, to plunge the human race into his domain, and to... Um, uh, try to control hu- the human race and human history. And so God is going to come back and execute salvation at the cross, and so Satan is again going to try to interfere here in a direct fulfillment where it is seen in Genesis 3.16 or 3.15 as a conflict between Satan and God. Satan is going to see to it that God's Savior is removed from the scene, not knowing that the very act is going to destroy him in the end. That is why uh, this is more than just demon influence. This is uh, demon possession because it is a personal involvement of Satan 
in an attack on Jesus Christ to remove him from the scene. Furthermore, it is fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies. In Psalm 41.9, it's prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. This is in Zechariah 11.12. And then in Zechariah 11.13, the money would be thrown into God's house and used into the temple, that is, and used to purchase a potter's field. So it's very clear when you examine the evidence that Judas, there's nothing in the scripture that says that Judas was ever a believer as there is with Peter, John, Nathaniel, Andrew, and some of the others. But there is evidence that Jesus clearly distinguished Judas from the others. He's called the son of perdition in John 17, thus indicating he's not saved. He had Satan enter him, and since uh, believers cannot be possessed by Satan or demons, he must not have been a believer. He must be an unbeliever. Uh, Judas, possessed by Satan, fulfills the Genesis 3.15 prophecy that the serpent would bruise Christ on the heel, that Satan would be the one involved in that. And the only reason anybody's ever argued for Judas to be a believer is to show that believers can get really carnal and in tremendous rebellion, and you really don't need Judas to be a believer to argue for that. That's clearly substantiated by a number of other passages. So we see that what took place is clearly under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father. He had a plan and he had a purpose from all history that he works out and comes to fruition right there at the upper room. And we see all of these things coming together, which gives us tremendous confidence that salvation wasn't an accident, that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't an accident. It's all uh, planned out, and we see the clear free will decision of Satan and Judas going after Jesus, betraying him and taking him to the cross, and in their very free decision to betray Jesus and to attack Jesus, uh, Satan brought about his own doom and defeat because our salvation was accomplished on the cross and that's why scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we do thank you for the fact that you have done so much in our salvation that this is a plan that was put together in eternity past and that this is a plan that was brought to completion on the cross where jesus christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is is to believe in Jesus Christ, to accept Him as Savior, faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do is form words and thought alone and say, Father, I accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned this morning, that we would realize how great our salvation is and all the tremendous uh, work that you have done to bring this about, that we might spend eternity with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.